the, the Irish economic miracle in inverted commas was never meant to happen. A poor country like Ireland wasn't meant to like Ireland in the space of a decade went from one of the poorest countries in the well in, in the Western world to on paper the fourth wealthiest country in the world in the space of a school generation. Um, it was something that was hard for people on the left to come to terms with. I think the initial response was to suggest this was a souffle, that this was a bubble, that this wouldn't last. Um, uh, but certainly when you see apartment blocks going up, when you see um, cranes on the skyline, when you talk to your students and they've just come back from the Far East over the summer, when you talk to your students and they've just come back from a week in Prague during the midterm break, all of those kind of you know stories attest uh, to something um, that was that, that was happening. And I think what happened with the left during that period, and again, I include myself in this, much to my regret, was that people people's a way of interrogating that particular period was through catch, cultural categories rather than economic categories. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 6th of February, and we're here to discuss the Irish elections today. My name is Alex Hockley. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. As usual, George Hoare is in London. Hello, George. Hey. And Phil Cunliffe is in Canterbury, England. Hi, Phil. Hey. So this episode is coming out to you on Friday the 7th of February. Uh, the elections are the day after. Uh, you might be hearing this after, but uh, all that should be contained herein should still be very relevant, uh, whether you know the result or not. Um, this obviously is an opportunity to talk about Ireland and not just an opportunity for Phil to ask questions about how Brexit fits into this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's probably more germane here that Sinn Féin, I think, are polling at like 24%, which is quite a um, quite a shock and, and, you know, could be up for a, a major, major upset, um, at least in, you know, in terms of what, what you might have expected to have happened a, a few years ago. Could be the Irish political establishment getting uh, getting a bit of a bit of a shaking, and a, a couple of well, almost like a decade too late after like the really severe crisis there. Um, I mean, I don't know enough of, about Irish politics as I should do, but uh, you know, the two main parties are kind of two really boring centre right parties who've governed Ireland forever. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if that is cracking up in the same way that so many other political establishments are cracking up uh, all over the place, uh, as we've discussed on a number of other episodes uh, prior to this one. Um, so, rather than us yeah, just waffle no, that's, on... That said, that said, it's also, um, you know, it's also, uh, there's historic questions as well, because um, forever in the context of Ireland means, you know, about 100 years of independence, so I think tying tying that in, also bringing in the backdrop of Irish history, is also um, would be useful to do. Yeah, and and the context, I guess, of the you know comparing Ireland to 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 Greece or to some of the other pigs, and you know, the, I guess the economic context is particularly important in in recent What's a pig? Irish What's history. A pig? What's a pig? A pig's <laughs> what you make of it. No, it's Portugal, um, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain, the um, the periphery of Europe if you will yeah the, the um, indebted the indebted countries of the eurozone um pigs uh, it's a phrase 
it's a phrase that fell out um, that fell out as the kind of eurozone crisis has receded economically at least um, that was very prominent some years that. back yeah right there's so, two eyes so maybe it should be pigs <laughs> or maybe not right so uh, rather than us waffle on uh, about pigs and other things we are going to call up Colin Coulter uh, who will tell us a lot more about Ireland he's a sociology lecturer at Maynooth University uh, he's written about the Irish end of history which is obviously we quite like uh, not that we like the end of history but uh, we like it as a theme as regular listeners will know uh, and has written about Ireland as the, the model pupil or the model prisoner of uh, Eurozone austerity and he apparently also has a new book out on The Clash, that the band The Clash, uh, and the crisis of social democracy at the end of the 70s and the coming of Thatcherism, which sounds fascinating, but unfortunately we're not going to be able to approach that subject today. We'll have to talk to Colin about that at another point in the future. All right, here uh, is us talking to Colin. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. So just to get us started, um, we should go for an obvious hook and ask... These Irish elections, are we looking at an upset? Uh, is there going to be a populist upsurge in Ireland? And I think if it, if it did happen, it would maybe be one of the last places in Western Europe to experience one. And maybe not just a populist upsurge, but a left populist one in the form of Sinn Féin. Uh, they're riding around 24% in the poll. So to start us off, Colin, could you tell us, is, are we looking at an upset here? Um, yeah, possibly. Uh, Sinn Féin... I think against everybody's kind of predictions, probably including their own, they didn't put up, uh, they only, they're only standing, I think, 42 candidates, which is nowhere near enough to form a government. Uh, but uh, in the last couple of weeks, they've had a huge surge in the polls, um, although quite often the polls overstate uh, uh, how they, uh, the opinion polls quite often often overstate how they actually do in elections. Um, but Sinn Féin are a kind of strange beast um, in many respects. People often refer to them as 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 populist. Of course, I can mean many different things, but uh, they're strange kind of. Uh, um, a blend of a kind of fairly kind of conventional version of Irish republicanism with uh, varying kind of um, versions of kind of uh, of kind of socialist ideology, um, not necessarily a socialist party, but a party with socialists in it. Um, the kind of longer uh, uh, tradition of populism in, in Southern Irish politics is probably more closely associated with Fianna Fáil, which has historically been the largest party in Southern Ireland and has you know, really had that kind of catch-all ability to appeal to different sections of Irish society, very much synonymous with the kind of boom years of the Celtic Tiger, um, tried to kind of speak out of, as it's saying, this part of the world, speak out of both sides of its mouth at the same time, appeal to the kind of property class, the kind of building class, but also claim to be socialist. So there's kind of lots of kind of strands of populism in Ireland, but certainly um, Sinn Féin would resist that kind of um, characterization, but certainly they have a level of popularity south of the border that is unprecedented in recent times. It, they've had a difficult two or three days. Their past has come back predictably to haunt them. A number of events that happened uh, a decade or two ago um, that uh, members of the provisional IRA, of which Sinn Féin is the political wing, um, a number of murders that they were involved in, that they witnessed and didn't report, have come back to haunt them predictably. Um, but we possibly are looking at an upset, but the most likely outcome is a hung parliament of some description. So, Colin, I think before we go any further, uh, we should actually ask, as you've mentioned, the chaos of the past few decades, 
this election here, mm-hmm. how important is this election? If you can quantify such a thing, uh, is this an epochal one? Is are the grounds really shifting, or is this going to lead to a bit more of the same? I mean, you mentioned uh, the fact that uh, you know you, you criticize perhaps the notion of Sinn Fein as a populist party in in, in quotation marks. At this, and we, we ourselves are pretty critical of that notion of, of populism sure. as sort of a catch-all label. At the same time, what Sinn Féin are doing, as you've described, is portraying Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael as, you know, two of the same parties, part of the establishment, and were something different. And in that regard, it fits very much the sort of uh, populist model that you see across Europe. Sure. So, yeah, firstly, how important is this election, or how important do you imagine it being? Um, All of the elections really... Uh of the last dozen years have, have, have been critical. Um, perhaps the most likely outcome is, one of the most likely outcomes is a Fianna Fáil government with a sequence of coalition parties around them, which would be catastrophic. And um, the most likely outcome is possibly the chaos of nobody, nobody being able to form a government. But it, 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 it's really hugely important because it's a, it, it, it compounds a trend. I mean, if you go back a generation. The, the the two main parties here were getting 70-80% of the vote. They're now down possibly in this election to the low 40s. Um, it is possible, um, unlikely, but it is possible there may actually be a left government formed with Sinn Féin at its centre, although the numbers probably don't add up for that. I think it's really, really important because this is this is an, an election that's taken place in the context of Where's Ireland going to go now um, in the context of Brexit, in the context of having the highest rates of economic growth anywhere in the developed world, but having record levels of people on trolleys in hospitals, record levels of homelessness, record levels of rents, especially uh, in Dublin. So there is really a moment here where um, there, the, the the, the direction of where Ireland's going to go is is, is obviously up for grabs. Um, although, to be honest, it looks as if that's that's the outcome of this election isn't going to be cut and dried. It seems as, as if it's, things are going to be left hanging, possibly. So is it too much of a simplification, I guess, building on this question of um, where's Ireland going, to say that you have um, three main three main paths, a kind of left establishment, a right establishment path, and then a, a left populist um of of some sort path which is Sinn Féin um yeah I I I think there's possibly only really two there because I think um there's certainly a centre-right consensus which has kind of prevailed here with a kind of populist tinge under Fianna Fáil which has prevailed here really for the last uh 25 years um this is the first time possibly uh where, where there is at least the possibility of a kind of a, a left government with a populist program. Sinn Féin claimed that they're going to build 100,000 um, public sector houses, um, the most ambitious program in the history of state uh, within this um, this period of government, um, which is an exciting claim, which of course is is, is frowned upon and which is kind of um, undermined at a return by, by journalists and politicians uh, alike. But there is the possibility of Sinn Féin being at the head of a government which takes the country in a very different direction. Although, of course, with compromises, one of the things that um, uh, got Sinn Féin into trouble in the past was questioning Ireland's corporation tax, which I'm sure we'll come back and discuss uh, at some point during the the conversation. 
But um, that's something that they've, the, they, they've compromised on. They agree with the consensus now that the corporation tax will remain where it is. But, I mean, Sinn Féin has a, 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 you know, it's quite often dismissed a, 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 as being populist, but certainly it's um, hugely important in all sorts of ways. Um, I'm, I'm not a supporter. I'm not a voter. Um, I would be a supporter of parties to, to, to the left of them. But they, they have certainly... Um, a real role to play in terms of bringing a certain kind of idea of social justice back to mainstream discussion after a sequence of essentially neoliberal policies for an entire generation, really going back to uh, going back to the uh, 1990s. So I suppose two questions follow from that. Is there that there has there been like a cordon sanitaire in Irish politics in which Sinn Féin has been excluded by the other parties from any kind of um, power or coalition agreement um, in the past, at least? And uh, also, has um, how has Sinn Féin or to what extent has Sinn Féin altered its pitch to voters in order to make the gains that they have, or is it purely a reaction against the other establishment parties of which um, Sinn Féin is now the beneficiary? Um, I think, yeah, the, the cordon sanitaire thing is is a good place to start with them because, uh, of course, we have Sinn Féin is an all-Ireland party, but there are two jurisdictions on the island. And there is a regional UK assembly in Belfast and, of course, a national assembly in Dublin. Sinn Féin is uh, one of the two principal parties in the Belfast assembly, but it is not a member of government uh, south of the border. The two parties that have historically dominated power south of the border have both said that they won't form a coalition government with them, which is, of course, deeply hypocritical because they... Um, have been encouraging uh, uh, unionists north of the border, um, many of whom, of course, lost loved ones during the IRA campaign, during the Troubles, to form governments with Sinn Féin. So there's a great deal of double standards here. But there is a sense of trying to keep Sinn Féin at arm's length, partly because of the whiff of Cordite, the association with the Northern Irish Troubles, but more recently because in the chaos of the last dozen years or so, um, of the crash and the attempts to come out of the crash, Sinn Féin has been the biggest beneficiary. There are parties to the left of Sinn Féin, but Sinn Féin is the voice that is critical of austerity and post-austerity programmes that has really managed to get a foothold with um, uh, with the electorate. So really Sinn, Féin, uh, Sinn Féin's apparent appeal in the polls is because they have been able to very, very adroitly say both of these parties are the same, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, the two big establishment parties are essentially the same, which is a very easy argument to make because it's essentially true. It's very, very difficult to distinguish between the two of them other than whose grandfather fought on which side of the Irish Civil War um, uh, nearly a century ago. Um, so, they, so, who, so who's the new Sinn Féin voter? What do they, what do they look like? I mean, where are they from? Um, you know, how, how might they have voted in the past? I think looking to Northern Ireland is probably a good indication of maybe what's going on in Southern Ireland because historically north of the border, Sinn Féin's vote was um, in working class Catholic nationalist uh, communities. And over the last 20 years, they have increased their appeal beyond that. Really kind of uh, best illustrated by in North Belfast, Sinn Féin taking North Belfast for the first time with John Finucane, of course, a middle class solicitor, uh, son of a murdered uh, lawyer, of course, Pat Finucane, um, and very much indicative of Sinn Féin's ability to go beyond, you know, the nationalist ghettos, 
uh, towards um, kind of middle class, middle class professional people. I think there's an element of that south of the border. Certainly Sinn Féin's appeal is very much a, an urban working class one. But it has, I think, for young people, I was talking to a colleague today who teaches politics in the university we both work in, and he did a straw poll with his students and assuming that the Greens would be getting a, a big, big vote among uh, people of that age, 18, 19, 20, Sinn Féin were way ahead among his, his class. Um, there does seem to be that sense that Sinn Féin have... Uh, they've never been a power south of the border, um, so therefore they, they haven't been in the position to introduce policies that um, people are offended by. There's a certain radicalism about them. There's, um, I think, the leadership, uh, specifically the new leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, who's been in uh, that position of president for two years, is very different from the old version of Sinn Féin. She didn't go to prison. Members of her family didn't go to prison. She's from South Dublin. She's middle class. She's not from a traditional uh, Republican background. So there's what Sinn Féin have done has has been to try and slip off some of that baggage uh, while tapping into that old Republican baggage, while tapping into that sense of dismay first in the crash that happened in Ireland. And secondly, that the recovery in Ireland is one that's made a very substantial minority of people a lot worse off. So they cover they cover a number of bases. There, there, there are many different things as parties tend to be, but I think they've 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 certainly they seem to be going beyond that kind of those those those, those traditional working class roots and appealing to a much wider audience. So let's actually go back because I think it'd be worth spelling out uh, for us, for our listeners, uh, what the centre-right consensus is, who as parties Finn Gael and Fianna Foyle are. Uh, I mean, from the outside, they seem hardly distinguishable centre-right parties, mm. um, but they've dominated Irish politics since independence. So maybe, first of all, if you could give us an overview of where both came from, starting with the Civil War, um, because I think <laughs> that the tendency would be, for those familiar with like, certainly Western European politics, would be to read these as, well, one's kind of centre-left, one's kind of centre-right, and they both have dominated politics in much the way as social democrats and Christian democrats have dominated German politics or wh- wherever. Um, that obviously isn't the case. So maybe if you could spell out what those histories are, wh- where do those parties come from, uh, and maybe what their bases are today. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's one of the kind of running jokes of, of, of Irish politics, which is that the they're indistinguishable. The, the 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 point of origin is essentially in the Irish Civil War, um, the dispute over whether to recognise the, the 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 treaty that would end the Black and Tan War, the War of Independence, as it would be called here, and uh, ideologically, um, very very difficult to distinguish. Historically, Fine Gael, very much the party of the the big property owners. Uh, a party that has its specific origins in um, uh, 1930s era fascism, uh, the blue shirt movement, um, Fianna Fáil, um, a party with a, a rather wider kind of social appeal, um, very much roots in kind of small farmers, uh, also an appeal to the urban working class. Michal Martin, the party leader, said today that uh, they were the party of the working class. So Fianna Fáil has always had that catch-all appeal. It's um, it's always attempted to appeal to small farmers, poor uh, urban uh, uh, Irish people, um, whereas Fine Gael has always been seen as the party of the elite, the party of the establishment, although very hard to distinguish, certainly in the time that I've lived in Southern Ireland, uh, very hard to get a cigarette paper between the two of them. Um, really, since 
uh, the late 1980s, both of them have adhered to the same kind of neoliberal um, uh, playbook. Um, very, very difficult to distinguish between the two of them at all. I've lived, I'm from Northern Ireland, I'm from a unionist background, I'm not really versed in the kind of the lore of Irish nationalist history. And I have to be honest, um, I've spent 25 years here and I can't distinguish between those two parties. I'll go to the grave, unable to distinguish between those two parties. <laughs> Um, uh, they, but essentially, um, they're different in their tone, but, um, in terms of what they do in par, um, um, they really, that metaphor of not being able to put a cigarette paper between them seems pretty apt to me. And they seem, and they have even supported each other in government, right? I mean, you had, uh, you had a minority <sighs> government being supported, uh, the fin- a Fine Gael, uh, minority government being supported by Fianna Foyle, right? Well, I, they never have actually until this this the, the, this this parliament that's um, just been uh, dissolved. They've always been the big two um, competitors, and uh, historically, Fianna Fáil um, has ha- held par more often. Quite often, held par without a coalition partner. More often, Fine Gael is the smaller of the two parties. Has quite often gone into par with this kind of small, quite conservative Irish uh, Labour Party. This is the first time that there's really been any kind of coalition between the two with Fianna Fáil as kind of um, having a confidence and supply kind of arrangement like the DUP and the Conservatives where essentially they agree that they won't vote against the government in um, in motions of, of, of no confidence. So it's not a coalition as such. It's um, essentially a marriage of convenience that was very much couched in 2016 because there was no definite outcome to the election it was very much couched as you predictably as being in the national interest we were emerging from crisis um the recovery as it's called was not yet um not yet stable and mature and we needed to be mature ourselves and everybody needed to put the civil war distinctions behind them and pull on the green jersey and basically um hold their noses and agree to be um uh, agree to get along with one another but um no, it's uh, there's 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 actually never been a coalition between those two parties. Although the norm in Southern Ireland um, is 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 coalition government. Quite often between what appear at first glance peculiar uh, bedfellows, um, such as um, a say Fine Gael, which is a kind of right wing Thatcherite um, high establishment party, and uh, the Irish Labour Party, which has included you know remnants of 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 old kind of stalinist um and trotskyist kind of influences so, so um, oh sorry just just really quickly to to jump in so beyond the three main parties what's the role of the um, smaller parties are they particularly um looking to play a significant role in this in this um upcoming election yeah well i mean historically uh it, because of the nature of of, of, of the chaos of, of that version of kind of coalition government, quite often quite small parties have exercised very, very strong influence. The progressive Democrats in the 1990s and the 2000s were essentially a Thatcherite breakaway from Fianna Fáil, um, who were in government with uh, Fianna Fáil, um, who were very pro-market, very pro-multinational capital, very uh, the cheerleaders of the use of Shannon Airport for the as uh, a conduit for American troops on the way to theatres of war in uh, the Persian Gulf and uh, and elsewhere. More recently, both Labour and the Greens have had periods in coalition government. Although, of course, again, predictably. Both of them have had disastrous experiences 
Both of them effectively were wiped out because they were essentially um, in coalition governments that were imposing austerity measures that were among the harshest, certainly outside of outside of Greece, uh, the harshest um, austerity program in um, in the European Union. So. One of the strange things about Irish political life and Irish political culture, it is it is quite quite small groupings can punch above their weight and can connect into the system. And one of the things I think for British kind of and 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 American people might seem a little strange is of course that you have fully fledged Trotskyists in the doll. You've got half a dozen people who have another been involved in um, the Socialist Party, the Socialist Workers Party. And they've fragmented somewhat, but there are half a dozen there who um, uh, have held their seats for the last couple of dolls, or the last couple of parliaments. But um, some of them will be clinging on for dear life um, uh, come the weekend, I think, unfortunately. Right. I mean, it, it is, yeah, it is curious, as you say, because in many other places, especially, I guess, in the Anglophone world, uh, traces of the radical left have been completely expunged from formal politics. Um, and I think maybe that would be a good uh opportunity to delve back into uh the past um as we on this podcast like to discuss the end of history and what we're living through now the end of the end of history i think it might be worth returning to to sort of maybe the early 90s in in ireland uh and then building our way forward doing that kind of more chronologically because uh, what, what i wanted to ask is that ireland seems to be uh, and seem to have lived through the 90s and 2000s, a sort of peak Fukuyamaist period to really encapsulate the end of history, the idea of leaving old passions behind, uh, be they nationalist or socialist or whatever, and just embrace uh, a world of uh, neoliberal consumerism as the sort of final horizon of, of what you could hope for in life. Uh, and and because Ireland seemed to be doing quite well out of it, it could live in that kind of post-historical bubble. Um do you think that's a fair characterization? I mean, you've written specifically on Ireland's end of history. So do you, do you see that as a fair characterization of Irish social and political life in the 90s and 2000s? Yeah, I don't think any country, certainly uh, I, I, in, in the Western world, I don't think there's a country that exemplifies those kind of um, ideological currents or, 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 or those kind of historical arcs of, 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 of boom and bust and whatever this particular phase is other than Ireland. I mean, if you go back... Well, if you go back to the 1980s, you've got Ireland was usually referred to as the poorest of the wealthy countries of the world. It had the highest rate of um, uh, national uh, debt per capita in the world. Um, there was a conference at the very beginning of the 1990s in Dublin that asked the question, and it wasn't it wasn't ironic, um, is Ireland a third world country? By the end of the 1990s, Ireland has the highest rates of economic growth outside of China. Um, uh, it's overtaken the EU average. It's overtaken Britain's GDP. Um, I mean, there's a, there, there's a remarkable historical or kind of end of historical moment, um, which is the 31st of August, 1994. And two things happen. One is the provisional IRA declare as of midnight they're going to stop their uh, their campaign, however we might want to characterise that campaign. And on the same day, a guy called Kevin Gardner, working in London for Morgan Stanley Bank, comes up with a phrase, he's been searching around for a while for this phrase to describe Ireland's economic miracle, and he says it's the Celtic Tiger. And you have this kind of, I mean, you couldn't script it. 
um, that these two things would happen at the same day, this moment where Ireland's economic growth uh, finds this kind of metaphor that will pop up everywhere for, for, for years to come, uh, and this moment when Ireland appears to finally be overcoming its kind of great historical um, divisions and inability to overcome its uh, past. So um, Ireland really does exemplify that moment um, of, you know, we're at the end of history, all there is, all that remains to us is, is, is the shop and, and, and occasionally devote and let's get on with it. And of course, the metaphor that would be used as an accusation later is that apparently we all partied and the evidence. Um, is that true? I mean, did people, did the ordinary Irish people, did they buy into it? Um, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think- beyond, you know, beyond kind of uh, benefiting from the property bubble and all of this. I mean, was it, did it go into, did they politically buy into the vision that was sold? Um, I, I, I think you would have to say that many people, m- many people did, um, because it was a time of, of, of for many people, ferocious uh, apparent progress. And many people who had never had money before had money. Many people, for example, if you were, if you had a manual trade and were uh, and were in Dublin, if you were a, a plumber or an electrician or whatever, the money that you could earn was was. Um, uh, something that previous previously would have only been available to doctors and 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 lawyers and so on, um, and many people during that time totted perhaps, and I and I was I was probably one of those who kind of said, well, you know, I mean, people have kind of fallen for mammon. There's more than, you know, what, what about issues of equality? What about the issues of public services? But I mean, certainly there was a period in the 1990s when um, uh, people people who had never experienced prosperity before got a taste of it or at least got the impression of it and the great totem of this was as i'm sure you could you could guess was of course uh property prices um and which became you know a kind of fable kind of topic of um dinner party conversations uh, and so on but um not everybody bought into the bought into the narrative, but it, it was hard to resist. One of the things at the time, there was a guy called Dennis O'Hearn, who was um, who's an American uh, sociologist who um, lived in Northern Ireland for a time. And he wrote the first kind of critical book um, inside the Celtic Tiger about that particular period. But one of the problems was that people like Dennis, interesting book, good book, came with the kind of the old categories of sort of Latin American kind of dependency, world systems theory and kind of assumed that this was a bubble, that it was a mirage, that it was a simulacrum, whatever, and it wouldn't last. But the reality was at a certain point when you got the train back in the Dublin in the evening, the whole skyline was full of cranes. You, 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 you could smell the money or you could, so you could certainly get a sense of not really money, credit. You know. So, Ad, so I actually had a, a question on this. I mean, who, who didn't buy into this? Who was, was there any... Was it kind of quite a Dublin centric phenomenon? You know, the house prices, the cranes, the, you know, that 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 specific, I guess, fraction of the population that might have been really seeing certain benefits at this point in the mid 90s. Can I can I add to that, Colin? So just to clarify. So in addition to George's question, are you saying you're disagreeing with the dependency theory guy and you're saying that the economic progress was genuine? It wasn't. It was stuff was built and material standards of living improved, notwithstanding, I mean, other problems. So, if you could clarify that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think the problem was for the left, and I'd include myself in this, you know, you know, just, just, just to be self-critical. I think many people on the left weren't prepared for what happened to Ireland, because Ireland was, the, the Irish economic miracle, in inverted commas, was never meant to happen. A poor country like Ireland wasn't meant to, like Ireland in the space of a decade went from one of the poorest countries in the, well, in, in the Western world to, on paper, the fourth wealthiest country in the world in the space of a school generation. Um, it was something that was hard for people on the left to come to terms with. I think the initial response was to suggest this was a souffle, that this was a bubble, that this wouldn't last. Um, uh, but certainly when you see apartment blocks going up, when you see um, cranes on the skyline, when you talk to your students and they've just come back from the Far East over the summer, when you talk to your students and they've just come back from a week in Prague during the midterm break, all of those kind of you know stories attest uh, to something um, that was that, that was happening. And I think what happened with the left during that period, and again, I include myself in this, much to my regret, was that people people's a way of interrogating that particular period was through catch, cultural categories rather than economic categories. Um, were about kind of morally saying yes, there's a lot of money around, but um, people's lives are being ruined. There's a lot of money around, but not everybody has access to it. There's a lot of money around, but there's homelessness. There's high levels of uh, concealed unemployment through disability. And I think that one of the problems is that Ireland has not really had, until really after the crash, a real strong tradition of critical political economy that was looking what was going on in the economy, what was likely to make a crash. And if you look at a lot of the books that come out critically of the Celtic Tiger period, they're talking about culture rather than economics, even when claiming to talk about economics. Um, because I think people really found it very difficult to, 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 to get a grasp on that. Of course, many people were excluded from the Celtic Tiger boom. Many people um, were forgotten during the Celtic Tiger boom, but there was something clearly very real. All booms, of course, are elements of the real and the mythic, however you distinguish between those things, because one the most mythic thing of all is, of course, money. Uh, the most figurative thing of all in our lives is money and what drove that boom like every other boom is it it, it, it is credit um if somebody who earns thirty thousand euros can buy a house worth five hundred thousand euros you know you don't have to be an economist to work out that there's some there's there's, Mm -hmm. you know there's a ponzi scheme at work and the the credit lubricating the wheels so there's always a, a, a mythical element of these things but the response of the left was a slightly kind of actually a conservatism, a moral conservatism, um, um, which was that um, the fabric of Irish society was was there was a rampant individualism. The um, the I was, was you know was was preeminent over the we. Those kinds of things, and I think everybody found it in the the just the sheer kind of white heat of that moment of that decade, decade and a half, decade and a half, found it very hard to get a handle on it because. Um, uh there's very very few societies have experienced anything quite like that i mean i, I can't quite yeah. give you a sense of, of, of just how ex- I, I don't even no, think you've, you know give, I mean? you've given us a great sense of it already i mean just that that kind of leap forward suddenly um and the left being kind of wrong-footed I mean, I did want to really quickly 
make an addendum to, to George's question as well. In terms of those who were, like, let's say, left behind by, by the end of history, or maybe those who were treated as not on board with the, the new hip thing that's going on, um, sure. you know, uh, were kind of nationalists and socialists as well, for that matter, treated as sort of, you know, people who hadn't let, who hadn't let go of the old passions, let's say. Um, how were those people treated during this period? Well, again, you see, the, the person who presides over this period is is the classic populist in 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 in, in the re, in the sense of the term that used to exist, um, a man called Bertie Ahern, and Bertie Ahern was a working class fella who deliberately stumbled over his words to conceal the fact that he was a very very astute political operator. And one of the things he famously said was that he was the last living socialist in Ireland. And he was a Fianna Fáil politician, and he embodied that Fianna Fáil tradition of being able to speak to all sides of the house, saying in this part of the world, to be able to speak out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. Um, and he was very dismissive of the left, because, of course, the left in Parliament uh, was essentially the Labour Party, um, which is a fairly kind of con- historically small, reasonably conservative, quite quite middle class, trade union associated uh, Labour Party, which has never had the kind of the breadth of appeal that, you know, parties, other kind of social democratic Labour Parties would have had in a, in a European context. So left voices were very marginalised. And of course, those left voices, anything that was critical, I mean, one of the people who was critical of the housing boom uh, was told by Bertie Ahern, to basically go and kill himself. And Bertie Hearn was speaking at a trade union event uh, up in the northwest of the country, up in Donegal. And when asked about the criticisms that were being made of the housing bubble and the claim that it was about to to burst, he said, I don't understand why people waste their time. I think the phrase was cribbing and moaning on the sidelines. Why don't they just go and kill themselves? Well, you know, uh, actually during the Celtic Tiger period, many people were. And um, I think those voices were marginal. There was a consensus. There was a belief. You know, I mean, you, you, I, I'm sure you could write the script yourself. There was an end of history belief that this was it, mm. that this was gone forever. Mm. Um, uh, you know, that uh, it was a matter of dotting the eyes, crossing the T's. It was all over bar the shouting, whatever those kind of phrases uh, might apply here. And um, uh, just really, there was that sense. Um, uh, you can see it even with students, you know, I mean, you know, trying to kind of get students to think critically about the Celtic Tiger. You could see them looking at you kind of, you know, just with that look of, you know, um, uh, if you felt like a flat earther being being critical of it because the boom kept going. That's the thing. It kept going. Every time somebody said it was going to slow, uh, it, it, it accelerated again, of course, until the wheels came off uh, completely. But. Nothing. I don't think there's a country in the Western world exemplifies that phrase, the 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 end of history that we've um, you know, that we've we've reached our, our, our you know, we made the desert bloom. We've we've reached our place in the sun. Um, I mean, remarkable things. I I, I you know, I remember a student many years ago um, telling me a story with great pride from a very very poor part of Dublin. Um, her family had um, had bought uh, a place in Bulgaria um, and. You know, th- there was a lot of those kinds of stories. Um, and of course, there's, those stories would turn very dark in time. But I often think of that particular story um, when I think of that period of just people who probably 
hadn't owned a home until the last generation suddenly became the owners of property in a country very far away away and it was there was a certain giddiness to the moment you know mm. i think also i i mean what's a really important part of this story i think in terms of what exemplified the emptiness of the Celtic Tiger boom is nothing really about economy, uh, although there was an element of, of economy in it, was Ireland's role in, in, in the Iraq war. I think for a lot of people, the way in which Ireland facilitate, facilitated the passage of American troops through Shannon Airport, uh, a civilian airport in a, a neutral country, in contravention of international and domestic uh, aviation laws and contravention, contravention of the Hague uh, Treaty. I think that became a, a lightning rod for a lot of people thinking we've lost our soul, we've, we, we, we've sold out, we've, we, 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 we've lost all sense of ourselves. So I think that was a very, as it was, of course, everywhere else, um, but that was a very, very important moment. People in Ireland really, really responded to that. And I think that articulated some deeper sense of there's something not quite wrong, not, not, there's something not quite right with this picture. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. talking about the, the picture not being quite right, um, it, uh, regular listeners will know that for our 100th episode, we asked several of our regular guests to uh, discuss what they felt was the most important event or moment of the past 30 years since since the end of history. And, and one of our regular guests, Angela Nagel, uh, gave this anecdote about uh, Ireland becoming obviously open to international capital, uh, welcoming all these foreign corporations, becoming a tech hub, uh, but there being a big conference and Ireland not having actually invested in the infrastructure uh, to provide high-speed internet sufficiently, which kind of, um, at least for her, symbolized the way in the kind of hollowness of, uh, of this sort of neoliberal period and the kind of growth model that that it uh that it brought forward um so yeah. i think maybe this might be a good moment to talk a little bit about the crisis um what ireland actually went through um and the degree to which uh the eu and the troika was actually involved um just to maybe as we're getting this bit of the conversation started uh we've discussed on previous podcasts you know portugal where the crisis uh, hasn't actually led to such a destruction of the welfare state and it occupies sort of a middle position greece which rebelled and faced annihilation and ireland on the other hand on the other extreme who seem to have completely bent over so maybe you could explain a little bit of the the historical narrative of how ireland i guess bent over yeah, I mean, to, to, to maybe just go back just a little bit further, just give, give people some sense, because I'm not sure people often realize this. What happened in Ireland during that moment, the crash, um, uh, 2007-2008, what happened in Ireland was, some people would say, the, the, the most substantial economic crash that's ever happened in a wealthy country outside of wartime lost more than 20% of its GDP in the space of about 18 months. I mean, usually you have to go to war and lose um, for something like that to happen to you. Um, I mean, it was a, 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 a European context, probably second only um, to Greece. One economist who came to Ireland at that time was asked for a comparison and it was at a press conference and he scratched his head and he was looking for a comparator country and he eventually actually said Zimbabwe, which of course is, is absurd, but in, in, wow, in, yeah. you know, in, in searching for it, I mean, its absurdity is, 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 is very telling. Um, what happened um, to Ireland was uh, the property boom, the, the property bubble, um, of course, burst. 
um, which meant that the various taxes coming from the sales of property um, then uh, uh, disappeared. Uh, people who were working on building sites suddenly became unemployed. So the state's incomings are disappearing, its outgoings are going through the roof. And of course, uh, in short order, there's a kind of fiscal crisis. Um, and certainly by the latter year, the latter months of 2010, it's very obvious that what was um, initially pitched as a an aberration, a temporary crisis, a liquidity crisis, was a structural crisis in Ireland's financial system, and that the country was essentially broke. Um, uh, there's a what's called a bailout um, by three agencies: um, the IMF, uh, the European Central Bank, and the European um, Commission. Um, supposedly gives Ireland 85 billion to keep the country ticking over. The 85 billion, it turns out, is um, really 67 and a half billion because the other 17 and a half billion is actually coming from the National Pension Fund. But it turns out that 67 and a half billion isn't really 67 and a half billion because 35 billion of it will never arrive in Ireland. It's going straight straight into the European banking system. Um, so we get a bailout that really isn't a bailout, not least because of the 85 billion, we end up with 32 and a half billion. Um, all of the money that we borrowed from these institutions is being paid well over the going rate. It's being paid at 5.75%. So essentially, you know, we're um, uh, what's what 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 is depicted as a bailout is essentially a bailout of the European banking system that we're paying for, but we're paying for it way over the market rates at the time. Um, and of course, in order to pay back that money, there's a sequence of six different austerity budgets that take about 30,000 million out of the Irish economy that impose really quite incredible hardship um, in a country that, you know, remembered serious hardship back in the 1980s and beyond. Uh, and this is the period, this is the period, um, if I'm right, also that Ireland began exporting people again for the first time in a generation Absolutely. It's is that in, right? Yeah. And, and one of the most culturally sensitive barometers, because, of course, Ireland is the country of, of um, uh, is a country of, of uh, traditionally of, of, of um, diaspora and, and, and emigration. Uh, I remember actually when Castro, Fidel Castro died, there was a, a very snide uh, documentary about him on, on BBC Two. And one of the um, uh, one of the metrics that was used to castigate the, the 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 Castro regime was that one in six people born in Cuba lived outside the country. That's exactly the figure for Ireland. Over six hundred thousand people left wow. uh, during the crash. Sixty um, percent of them had college degrees. Um, uh, you know, really very very vicious uh, austerity imposed by. Um, in part by the Labour Party, by a party ostensibly um, of the left. Um, at one point, one in three Irish children were going to bed without uh, going to bed or going to school hungry. Um, some really quite terrifying um, metrics of, 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 of austerity that you know, mirrored in many other European countries, but perhaps uh, even more um, extreme. But of course, Ireland in all of this was the best boy in class. It was always the model pupil or Yanis Varoufakis refers to it as the model prisoner. Um, the metaphor obviously meant the mean that the country who thinks that if they play ball, they, 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 they will be, um, uh, they will, uh, they will avoid some of the, you know, the kind of, um, the lash of, uh, of, of neoliberal discipline. 
So, so what? So what? What? What ex- explains this? I mean, you might have been going on to to kind of clarify this, but it just seems extraordinary of this loss of twenty percent of GDP in eighteen months. This mm. you know repeated incredible austerity. Um, yeah, why was why were the Irish and Greek paths so so different? Why was there not that politicization? Well, why, why? They're not that diff- They're not that different. The the Greeks took it right. They had their little show referendum, and then they took it. <laughs> Um, isn't the real question as to why? So why did the Irish take it as well? Well, the, the two. I have, a, I have a theory. May I put my forward my theory? Sure. My theory is that this is going to. Alex is probably going to edit this out afterwards. But I think when the Irish gave into the smoking ban before any other European country, then we knew that it was all over. They were going to roll over for everything. Would you say? <laughs> would you say that's? Would Phil, you say I, that's I, fair? I mean, I, I think that's you know maybe slightly glib as a theory, but also uh, if we're making the Irish Greek comparison, you know the Greeks uh, still keep smoking away even though even though there's a ban. So you know maybe that gives you an idea of the contrast. <laughs> yeah, um, interesting theory. Um, I'm not sure quite what to do with that, but I, I don't. Think- I, I mean, you don't, you don't ignore say, him. You just ignore him. <laughs> you can you can just answer my question yeah, if, if you want. Has to be more tethered to the earth. Uh, I I think what it is. I I think it's I, I, it's a number of things. One is ideology. I think one is that the people who led the country through the crisis really believed that this was the only show on time, really believed, really bought the austerity uh, argument. Um, there was remarkably little dissent among, at, at the level of the public sphere, uh, by which I mean the political class, um, the journalists, um, the the people who appear on the kind of national broadcaster and appear on the political kind of chat shows. There was a remarkable um, consensus. That's not to mean that everybody bought into it. But among those people who are making the decisions, there was a really a sense of we are, we are. There is no alternative. All of those people won't use, wouldn't use the phrase there is no alternative because it's Thatcherite connotations, it's British connotations. But the phrase was essentially we are where we are. This is simply what we have to do. I think there was that. There was an ideological consensus. Which was so it was really- kind of the the flip side. Sorry to cut in. It was kind of the flip side then of the the depth of the end of history. So it was the fact that there there was no alternative had been accepted just in the pre- period prior. So sure. when there was a, a change from from good to bad, it was like well, there was no alternative before, and there's no alternative now. So you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's certainly there's certainly an echo there. I mean, I think there's there's a certain quotidian logic to to austerity politics, which is um, there's a sovereign debt crisis. Um, uh, one way to rectify this is by spending less. The only way to spend less in the logic of you know the kind of uh, the modern neoliberal state is, of course, to hammer the people at the bottom of the pile, and therefore you know various forms of public provision get cut. The, the, that lovely Alexi Seal quote that austerity is the idea that um, the global financial crash happened because Wolverhampton has too many public libraries. That idea became kind of solidified pretty quickly. And certainly in mainstream public debate, it's not to say there weren't dissent, dissenting voices, but in terms of those people close to government, there was a consensus. The second thing that I think that, that was really, really important um, in this um was the trade union movement um there was a lot of dissent there was a lot of strands to dissent there was a lot of grassroots dissent 
But there was, until the movement against the introduction of water charges, which was mentioned in the Troika bailout, until that really took off in the autumn of 2014, there was no kind of real lightning rod for this very disparate set of this sense of this is unfair, um, we are the whipping boys for Brussels and Frankfurt, uh, the, 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 the people being damaged, most of the people um, in most vulnerable positions. The trade union movement organised well, three demonstrations that brought out more than 100,000 people on the streets of Dublin, which, you know, is the equivalent of, you know, one and a half million in London. Um, marched them up the top of the hill and then did nothing with it because the trade union movement strategy throughout the whole crisis was to get back into talks with government, which they'd been in since the late 1980s. So I, I, I think there was that. I think there was also... It kind of, and this maybe goes back to the kind of, you know, the comment about you know, about about the smoking ban and, and political cultures and so on. There's a very strong streak of um, opportunistic pro-European sentiment among the political elite in Ireland. Uh, and I mean opportunistic in the sense that when it doesn't suit them to be pro-European, they simply they simply abandon it. But one of the things that's really historically very, very important, certainly in the time I've lived uh, in, in Southern Ireland, has been the approval of the European Union, the approval of, of, of people who operate um, at the level of the global institutions of political power. And there was it, it struck me that from the word go, politician was a pains to prove that they would take the hard medicine, that they would be the best boys in class and very specifically to go back your your point of comparison with Greece, very specifically to say they were not Greece. Back as early as 2011, um, Michael Noonan, who was the finance minister throughout uh, of Fine Gael, who was the minister throughout, you know, much of, of, of the crisis, said um, uh, in response, there's a, a, a famous um, placard in a demonstration in Greece that says, um, uh, we, are not, we are not Ireland, we will resist. And in response to this, he said, well, you know, I want everybody to know, yes, that's right, we are not Greece. And I'm going to have T-shirts made. And I'm going to, you know, I'm gonna, everybody in government's going to wear these T-shirts saying that we're not Greece. And very, very deliberately, there was an attempt to distinguish themselves from Greece. And if you look in terms of it's very, very interesting. At a hunch, one of the things that struck me as very, very interesting when I went back to look at this period, when people started to talk about recovery, I noticed a story uh, which was Jean-Claude Trichet made a statement to the European Parliament in, I think it was March 2010, in which he said, this is around the time of the first Greek bailout, in which he said, uh, if Greece wants to see uh, a model of the future, a model of recovery, then we have to look to Ireland. And I thought, well, what's happening in March 2010? Mm -hmm. People are still leaving the country. Uh, property prices will keep falling for another three years. Unemployment will keep falling for another two years. The public mm -hmm. finances are in such disarray that within, what, eight months, there will mm -hmm. be a bailout and the national humiliation that goes along with it. So what, what are the narratives around Ireland's role in this? This small country that is very, very important because... There's several hundred billion of French and German uh, bank money in a system that doesn't look as if it's going to come back. But also ideologically, it's very, very important as a hammer to beat the other pigs, but uh, in specific, specifically to uh, really hammer the Greeks. And the Irish political class plays this very just, well. But just not to only say, that. Just to say yeah. who the pigs are. 
So the pigs here uh, is is just that 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 um, not terribly flat, flattering acronym for those countries that were heavily indebted during the eurozone crisis and regarded as p- potential um, uh, contaminants of, of the eurozone, which would have been Portugal, Ireland, Italy, um, Greece, and Spain. Um, so Ireland would have been very much in in in, in that category. But when, when I looked at Jean-Claude Trichet's comment, I kind of thought, that's pure ideology. I mean, we've got a country whose economy is circling the plug hole, and he's telling another country whose whose economy is doing precisely the same, probably at a faster rate, um, that they should they should follow Ireland. And I started tracing just through LexisNexis, um, which is a, just a, a very, very easy to use a search engine that allows you to search in this case, English language newspapers and define the frequency of certain phrases and so on. And what I found was mm. something, you know, um, both predictable and remarkable, which was every time people got excited about Ireland, it was they weren't really talking about Ireland. Every time that um, somebody like uh, Barroso um, or Triche, um, any senior figure in the kind of global political or economic elite got very excited about Ireland, if they were really talking about Greece, every time one of these right. figures that Ireland was the role model, it was the good boy in class, it it, 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 it was the model for the countries to cover. Those stories peak, guess when? Around the times of the three Greek bailouts. There's mm. a very obvious, I'm not suggesting that people sit down and, and strategize this, but there's a certain very obvious kind of confluence of interest between the kind of European uh, political and financial elite, the Dublin political establishment who think they can, if they take the hard medicine, they will somehow get out of this crisis and they will be punished the way that the Greeks are about to be punished, appear to be about to be punished. Um, so I think there's an interesting story here that is perhaps less well understood Um so to, to to bring this to bring I guess to bring this to the to the kind of the present day or to bring this to to Saturday specifically, I mean how does it how does all of this um I guess this history and this kind of narrative around Greece um, Ireland being the you know the, the good boy in class as, as you said how does this play in in terms of austerity EU austerity how does this play into what the, this election means on on Saturday. Yeah, I, if I can just maybe backtrack just a little bit, I will answer the question, but I, I just want to backtrack a, a little bit because in, in order to understand where we are, why Sinn Féin has the traction that it has, among other things, I think you have to understand Ireland, the, the importance of Ireland in the story of the kind of Eurozone crisis and the austerity programmes that were imposed on the, the pigs, the, 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 the countries, the badly indebted countries of the Eurozone. It was said that Ireland was the, the the poster child for austerity, but of course that narrative only works over a period of time if it is proved that the country that had introduced austerity is uh, entering a period of recovery. And of course, lo and behold, in 2014, Ireland begins to register rates of economic growth, 4 or 5%, the highest in Europe, and that's continued for the last six years or so. Um, so the proof of the pudding, people would have said, Ireland took the hard medicine, it is now in recovery. This is firm evidence that austerity is the, is the road to recovery. Every other country needs to follow this path. Syriza needs to start whinging and get with, get, get, get with the programme. But here's the irony of it. The way in which Ireland kickstarted its recovery was one that has been so damaging that it may almost 
be about to put Sinn Féin in the government. And the way it went about kickstarting its recovery was by selling off large chunks of property that had come into public ownership because the people who had built them were private property developers who had gone bust during the crash. And in 2013, a government headed by Fine Gael, uh, Thatcherite, high establishment, the Irish Labour Party, ostensibly the left, told the public agency that held this very, very large bank of um, distressed property and distressed loans to start selling them to international vulture funds. Um, And in 2013, that agency, NAMA, uh, began talking to Wall Street vulture funds, investment companies, um, would you come and buy these properties? In some cases, we'll even give you credit lines to do so. And what happens between 2013 and now is this cannibalization of Irish society by international uh, speculative finance capital. By the end of 2016, they own um, they own 90,000 properties and they own 50,000 mortgages. And uh, we're talking about a society here, which is you know the size of uh, maybe a third of the size of London. Um, in the place where I work, uh, a new a, a new development just on the just literally across the road from the campus, every single house, what appears to be starter homes and so on for for younger people, bought off plans by German um, vulture funds, cuckoo funds, and what has happened here is this the arrival of this version of multinational capital at the same time that the central bank has put very stringent controls on. Um, uh, the on mortgages, uh, on how much you can borrow for for uh, to buy a house, has meant essentially that vulture funds have distorted the um, residential and commercial property markets. House prices have gone up. Younger people can't buy them. Um, therefore, there's an increased demand on rental property. Rents in Dublin, on average, now are more than two thousand euros a month. We have an historic. Sorry, two thousand euros a month. And what's what? I don't know if you know what the medium wage is. To put into some context. Good, good, good question. I would say we. It sounds sounds like a high rent. I mean, Uh, we were talking about in the the low thirty thousand, thirty to thirty-five thousand would be the median Mm. in income. Um, So, I would say, for example, if you're a teacher here um, in Ireland. Uh, and your first pay packet is probably a little below, probably 1900 a month. And to rent a former council house in a not terribly exclusive part of Dublin may cost you 20, 21, 21, 2200 euros uh, a month. Um, so so basi- basically, it's just a, a recovery which is completely unsustainable and has led to the massive dis- dispossession of, um, of Irish property and. It's this, really, is the, this is the this is the the, the miracle or the, the recovery. It's a miracle, which on paper, you know, it, 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 it mean certainly the, the, um, if if GDP meant something, or if GDP meant something uh, unproblematic. I mean, Ireland would again be the great uh, miracle economy of the last uh, five uh, or six years. But the things that that are driving macroeconomic growth are vulture funds, and of course multinational capital, principally in pharmaceuticals and in information technology. One of the many quirks of Ireland's political economy is that multinational corporations are responsible for more than 90% of all exports.
the well, so, I mean, so, uh, so I, I mean, I had forgotten this this uh, little fact, but uh, I, I had a quick Google right before calling you up, trying to look at what I, uh, Ireland's GDP and GDP per capita growth rate had been over the past couple of years. And of course, you have this absurd spike in 2015, where Ireland hit 26.3% growth, um, which, you know, I mean, it's such an absurdity kind of gives lie to the whole story of, of, uh, of Irish growth over this period and Irish recovery, right? Yeah, and it, 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 I mean, this has been the case for a very long time, you know, because of the usual kind of currency practices of multinational capital. But of course, it's become accelerated in recent years for various reasons. Like, I mean, those figures that were released in the summer of um, of 2016, um, the figure there, 26.3%, famously Paul Krugman described it as um, a leprechaun economics and fortunate metaphor, but one that kind of captures the the, the absurdity of it. When they, the government was so embarrassed by the kind of the, the, the howls of derision that came from economists around the world that it later actually revised those figures. And the figure was somewhere between three and a half and four percent. But that's 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 a classic case. What inflated those figures uh, to twenty six point three percent was two things. One was that Apple moved its intellectual property uh, operations in, in, in principle to Ireland uh, because of a tax rate uh, um, reduction. And the other is that a company that uh, leases um, airplanes to airlines um, also moved all of its operations to, to Ireland. So two decisions made probably by a handful of, you know, men in, you know, expensive suits and, 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 and finely manicured and all the rest of it, um, essentially made it appear that Ireland had struck gold yet again. And, you know, the story that some people may know, but uh, it's always worth repeating, that summer um, when those figures were released, at the end of the summer, of course, the uh, European Commission uh, brought out its report about Ireland's, you know, cosy relationship with Apple. And what it said was that since 1991, the Irish state, under various kind of political flags, has had a relationship with uh, two different relationships with Apple. That means that essentially that it pays 0.005% corporation tax. Which is remarkable. Hard, hard to imagine. But what it means is for every 100,000 profit that it makes, it pays five cents. Which would mean that the average, if the average person in Ireland had paid that income tax, it would mean they would pay what about one euro seventy a year, about three four cents a week. Um, and of course, there's something worse about this, which goes back to my comment previously about the opportunism of of the Irish political establishment's love of the European Union, uh, which is the the money that's being moved through Ireland isn't money generated in Ireland uh, principally and when it comes to Apple it is money that it's being every time somebody goes into and buys an iPhone in Munich or Maastricht or or, or, or Milan or Madrid essentially that money appears as if it's it, it, it it's happened in Ireland yeah. as if those um, purchases have happened in Ireland and essentially it comes through two front companies in Ireland and it then disappears to a headquarters that actually doesn't exist yeah. Um, by paying so, so sorry just to, just to interrupt you um, because it, sure. it, would, it would be good to with all this context in mind to come back to the election um, and to discuss it in terms of right. well we don't know what what will happen and maybe listeners will be listening to this after the election but do you think with this uh, with this context with this dislocation that all these economic effects are finally 
finding political repercussion in the fact that um, you know Finnegal and Finnafoil might not no longer be uh, as he- kind of hegemonic parties as they used to be, and that this might provide room not just to Sinn Fein, which is booming in the polls, but for other left wing parties. I mean, what what do the prospects hold there? Yeah, I I, I think. There's a a huge distinction in Irish society between people who own property and people who don't, people who own their own homes and people who don't. And people who own their own homes are generally doing better than they were and emerging from the chaos. Those who don't, that's about 800,000 people who are in the rental sector, are facing problems that are um, uh, really, really, really quite inconceivable. Younger friends um you know all the stories that i'm sure people can predict you know uh people these uh, kind of extended adolescence of people in their 30s and 40s living at home having the people move back in with their parents people crashing in friends cities and i think we've got the kind of breaking point because we have a society that generates huge amounts of wealth uh on paper is one of the wealthiest societies in the world but in which uh public services are very very poor um to see it doctor in Dublin, uh, unless you're on a very, very low level of income, you have to pay, you have to pay for a prescription. Um, I'm from Belfast and Belfast, it's free to see a doctor and it's free for everybody to go and get their prescription after their doctor's visit. Um, in order to go to the emergency room, to go to A&E in the local hospital, there's one just, just, just around the corner from me. Um, to get across the door, you have to pay 100 euros to get seen by somebody. Um, we have a crisis, the highest number of people ever on trolleys um, in Irish hospitals. We've got 10,500 homeless people and we've got 4,000 homeless uh, children. Real, real crisis. And we have this, as you say, this, 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 this dislocated, this bipolar society. And I think Fine Gael, up until probably two or three weeks ago, it looked as if the narrative of recovery might get them in a position where they may form a government, but their vote is unraveled. Um, the leader of the party, Leo Varadkar, um, who featured on the cover of Time magazine, the son of an immigrant, um, a man who happens to be gay in a society where homosexuality was illegal um, within living memory, um, uh, is a very Thatcherite figure. Um, a very distant figure, and um, I think his uh, his persona seems very uncaring. It seems it, it, it seems very detached, very remote, and I think again that's something that's that's in the kind of televised debates. I think people have come to see him as just somebody who simply doesn't care. Fianna Fall are so still. This, sorry, yeah. uh, I wanted to so to kind of um, uh, pull out, I suppose, from the. Um, from the immediacy of the election, and to um, to ask the to ask a broader question about um, uh, what Sinn Fein might represent for relations with Britain, um, and particularly the question of unification. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me that um, unification is back on the agenda, and perhaps is um, likelier than it has been for a generation, perhaps for many generations. Um, so with the issue being that um, the British state is um, uh, effectively relinquishing its hold in Ireland, it has been for a while, but more recently, um, the fact that the Tories have ended their alliance with the, um, 
with the Democratic Ulster Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, and also that as part of the Brexit agreement um, with the European Union, they've accepted a customs border in the Irish Sea, which is to say that the um, six counties of Northern Ireland remain effectively economically part of the European Union and more integrated into Southern Ireland, into the Republic. Sinn Féin, obviously, historically has been the party that rejected um, rejected the border between North and South and opposed partition. Um, and so the fact that they're now surging in the polls, that they look like um, they'll be in a position to um, at least um, be in poll position to try and form a government. Mm. I was I wonder where that puts the question of unification in your mind, um, whether it brings it closer and how Sinn Féin, if Sinn Féin does end up on top, how that puts it with relation to the North. Yeah, I mean, two very interesting questions here. I mean, maybe take them in the reverse order to, to the way they were asked. The the second question really about Irish unification um, is a very, very complex one. Uh, and of course, I mean, I'm from Northern Ireland, have lived in Southern Ireland for a very long time. North of the border, the issue of where Northern Ireland was going to be for the foreseeable future was essentially uh, settled for the foreseeable future until the Brexit referendum. Um, I mean, all opinion polls showed at best within the nationalist community in Northern Ireland ambivalence um, towards the prospect of United Ireland. It just didn't seem to be something that was on the cards. South of the border, my own experience is it's hard to generalise, but um, uh, as a Northern Irish person who's taught courses about Northern Ireland for 25 years south of the Irish border, I could probably count the number of people who I've met who were fiercely interested in Northern Ireland, who didn't have a direct family connection to Northern Ireland. I could probably count them in the fingers of one hand, certainly could count them in the fingers of two. But certainly it does feel at times that the genie's out of the bottle, that the Brexit debate um, has but that, started. That, but, that, that's, but that's, this is what, I mean, to me, this is what's so interesting about it. And I mean, you know, it'll be mirrored, mirrored over here in the UK as well, um, that or in Britain as well, because nobody... Um, uh, you know, I mean, it was so striking in mm. all of the debates in British politics over the last few years. Nobody cares about Ireland. Um, and least of all the people, the, the Conservative and Unionist Party, that claims to be founded on preserving the union with Ireland. Sure. Um, so it's, very, you know, despite the fact, like you say, that on both sides of the Irish Sea, nobody seems to um, nobody seems to care passionately about it. Yet it seems to be happening almost irrevocably and against anybody's particular will. And it's as astonishing. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the great historical ironies, you know, that um, that uh, that the certainly the Democratic Unionist Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, historically the largest but now the smaller of the two Unionist parties, wasn't in favour of Brexit. Um, but certainly the DUP, of course, was a conduit for a lot of um, dark money to support Brexit from 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 across the water. Um, but the DUP uh, and those who voted for Brexit and those who advanced the, the case for Brexit have imperiled the union you know um this was I, I mean i saw people interviewed in television and experts drew their attention to this but they they, they didn't seem to be capable of, of realizing the great threat, threat of the union that brexit might realize under might might um represent under certain circumstances so i suppose the question for them for the Sinn fein is even if you know their electoral kind of success if it's based on 
um, the backwash of um, the backwash of the crisis, mm-hmm. the kind of the economic and social grievances that you mentioned in terms of the decay of public services, the fact that they um, build that they have working class support south of the border, their historic role and their political justification has been unification. Mm-hmm. So if they do come out in pole position, it's something they have to address. Um, independently of whether or not it's an immediate electoral priority, it's something which they will have to orient around. So how do you think they'll do it? Well, I, the thing is, nobody knows how they can do it. I mean, there, 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 there's two issues here. One is, um, do they want a border poll? Um, the Good Friday Agreement allows for a border poll. Do Sinn Féin want a border poll? On some occasions they say, yes, we do. On other occasions they say, yes, we do at some point in the future. At other occasions they, 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 they dodge the issue. The second problem is for anybody who wants a vote on Irish unity is that nobody knows the specific mechanism by which this will come about. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement only allows that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland will be obliged if there is evidence of sufficient will for United Ireland to create the conditions where people can vote on that eventuality. So there's a lot of kind of a lot of straws in the wind. Um, I think what happened, you have to remember as well, I mean, Sinn Féin was very, very lukewarm during the Brexit debate. It didn't even register um, with the electoral office in Belfast to be one of the parties involved in the debates around Brexit. It's been a very unwitting kind of um, beneficiary of the chaos that's that, that, that's come from Brexit. Of course, it's their the main plank of their programme. It's the thing that we all identify with Sinn Féin. But the problem for Sinn Féin is they can overplay their hand. Um, what happens if there is a, a border poll about, about uh, Irish unity? What happens if it loses? Um, uh, what happens if it is called um, uh, too early? What happens if we have like a, a, a kind of situation similar to uh, Scotland? What happens, my understanding is that there will have to be simultaneous referenda both sides of the border. What would happen south of the border where people's attitudes to Northern Ireland and Irish unity are deeply, deeply ambivalent. What we found over the last couple of days when the media and the other parties have dredged up issues of Northern Ireland's violent past and Sinn Féin's prominent role and Republicans' prominent role in that is that people get very, very nervous about that very, very quickly. So Sinn Féin is in a very, very delicate position where... If it were in a position to voice an argument for a border poll and not do so, it may be regarded as hypocritical and losing momentum. And of course, it's it's raison d'etre. Why, why would it not do that? If it calls it too early, it could be a strategic error. If it advances it too rapidly, it can alienate opinion, particularly south of, of, of the border, which, as I say, is very, very ambivalent. It's a difficult one. Huge amount to play for. Um, huge amount to play for there. Uh, Colin, I'm going to have to cut you off there, but um, thank you so much. I, that was actually, you've very brilliantly illustrated uh, the current Irish context, its history, and all that there is to play for in these elections. So thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Yeah, it was yeah, wonderful. Thanks. And we should, we need to get you back on to talk about the clash. <laughs> Indeed, to. yeah. Yeah, just don't get me on to talk about Morris Singh. That would break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have that in the pipeline at any point in any future that we might have. Yeah, that's your sharing to know. Okay, thanks, lad. Thanks again. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.